Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. In the deep, dark waters, Tyler, 12,000 feet deep, 350 miles offshore of Newfoundland, Canada, there is a prize on the bottom of the sea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the Titanic. And uh, the Titanic wreck in this show is all about the Titanic. And, uh, yeah, we're having, Tyler, you know, it's been 4th of July. I hope everybody had a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. And uh, we've been on the ship tear lately. You know, we had on Drock. We did two shows, which I thought were fantastic, about the history of naval shipping. And today we got an awesome guest to talk about. The most famous shipwreck on the planet Earth, the RMS Titanic. That's right. Why don't you introduce him? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, this was a real find. Uh, Ula Varmer is a senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation. And uh, he practiced law with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for several decades. And... Uh, during his tenure in government service as a lawyer, uh, he was knee-deep, neck-deep in the RMS Titanic and the wreck. And uh, so this is going to be a show about about the wreck, how it's managed, and the legal battles behind the scenes, and whether or not the ship's going to get, I don't know, can we say looted? I mean, yeah, you're burying the lead there, Pete, because what's happening is there is a company that wants to go right now. Yeah. is trying very aggressively to get on the Titanic and take, uh, you know, I guess I'll use they the won't. polite term and I'll call it a salvage, but we're talking about uh, a, a, a an area that I think is, pro- you know, we could probably agree is, is uh, kind of like a, a civil war battlefield or a, a gravesite or something like that. And it's just, it's a, it's a, it's obviously an opaque area, but uh, we raised our alarms and we wanted to learn more about what's going on. And it turns out it's a fascinating world of yeah. international treaties and different departments in the federal government. We're like our Legal audience battles, courtroom fights. Our audience is going to eat this up. Yeah. I think so, so we are super stoked to bring you this show today. Uh, who doesn't like diving down to the Titanic? No kidding. But before we get to it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new Coastal Resiliency Department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. 
Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Well, Ula, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and it's a real treat to go on a guided tour, not only of this wreck, but also the legal battles behind the scenes that have been going on, I understand, for decades. Uh, Ula, how did you get involved? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got connected to and involved with the Titanic wreck. Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, one of the most interesting and favorite topics of uh, my career at NOAA. Uh, I start, you know, I'm a, an immigrant, as you might guess by my name, of, of Danish origin. And uh, as the Danes, we love shipwrecks. And uh, when I got out of law school at Cardozo in 87, uh, I, I, I got a job at the Commerce Department. And within uh, two years, I was able to move to NOAA because it became apparent to me that that was the agency that I would be able to get to work on environmental issues that I really cared about. But my first assignment ended up being uh, a, a kind of a, an administrative suit involving wreck divers and NOAA on the USS Monitor. And then I realized uh, this is wonderful, <laughs> you know. And after a couple of cases, I got you know, got known as the, the shipwreck guy within NOAA. Uh, and uh, they they got a call from uh, Craig McLean was a NOAA Corps officer that was going to law school at the time. And he was a law clerk to Bob Ballard. And he contacted NOAA about uh, taking some action in the Eastern District of Virginia because there was a salvage case uh, involving Titanic had been filed and wanted to intervene, you know, to... Uh, point out that the uh, the RMS uh, you know, RMS Titanic Memorial Act of '86 had a provision in it that sensed that there should be no salvage until there's an agreement and guidelines. And I I didn't even know about the law, so I got all this information from Craig, and uh, and as a result, I started being able to work on Titanic. Now we were not successful in getting justice to intervene at that time. But that sparked me reaching out to the State Department and ultimately other nations, Canada, France, the UK, in trying to start the process for negotiating an international agreement. And there was a little bit of a lagging for, for a number of reasons. But what happened was uh, there was a, a George Tulloch had a company that was then called Titanic Ventures, and they convinced Eiffermeer to do an expedition. Titanic was discovered in 1985, in September of 1985, co-discovered by Bob Ballard, Dr. Bob Ballard of the U.S., and uh, Eiffermeer. It's kind of like the French Institute that's kind of the counterpart of NOAA. And... Um, well, Ballard was not interested in any salvage, and he was successful in getting Congress to pass a law, the, the, the 86 Act, which I want to note 
He discovered it in September of 85, and President Reagan is signing the law in October of 86, one year. This is when Congress really worked well together, uh, bygone days, I suppose. Um, in any event, we, you know, we move forward, and they, George Tulloch convinced Ifremir to take him to Titanic and do some salvage under the conditions that the French insisted on that, you know, this not be a salvage where they, you know, sell artifacts at um, Sotheby's or some other auction house, but keep the collection together and make money off of museum receipts. That was the original business plan. And that worked, uh, but, and they took the artifacts and they were being conserved in France. Well, in the interim, another salvage company called Marax Inc. filed in the Eastern District of Virginia a salvage claim. They alleged they had recovered a wine decanter, um, which uh, is a kind of like an element of salvage law to trigger the jurisdiction, you know, because people have the question, how does the Eastern District of Virginia get jurisdiction over a British flagged vessel lying on the slope of continental shelf of Canada? And the answer is under salvage law, if you recover some property and you take it into the territorial jurisdiction of a court, they can assert jurisdiction over that property. And then there's created a legal fiction that they therefore have jurisdiction over the salvage activities of that vessel. And uh, they picked the um, Eastern District of Virginia because that was the court that had extended the jurisdiction the furthest to that date, which was the Columbus America, some uh, 100 miles off of the coast of the Carolinas in Virginia. And uh, and they, so they knew they had a court that would be friendly to uh, wait. That's another that's another shipwreck. Yes, that's a it's a gold rush shipwreck that uh, was subject to salvage. And the, that's uh, that's the first one where they established that precedent. Well, the most of the shipwreck cases have, you know, when when like Mel Fisher is probably the most famous treasure yeah. hunter. The concept, the right to the Atosha right? and the Margarita the Atosha, and the yeah. Spanish galleons, yeah. but those those wrecks were only three, four, five, ten miles offshore, you know, um, you know, often sunk by hurricanes and coral, but they were near shore, and um, th this was the first, you know, as technology increased, the ability to salvage at depth at these deep depths was you know great and that columbus america at the time was probably one of the deepest wrecks and the furthest offshore and then titanic being twelve thousand feet underwater and you know hundreds of miles from the nearest coast um you know Ola, i just gotta really ask furthest jurisdiction you know it's i'm i'm you raise an interesting point I, i've been thinking about this and this is just you know obviously the titanic is such a uh romanticized and truly i mean i i i am totally a titanic head myself i i think it's just a totally sexy concept i don't know why but um 
there's something about it where I'm like, that's sacred ground. Don't mess with it. But if it's like a 2000 year old uh, Roman vessel, I'm like, let's what can we learn? Let's pull all this. And I'm just wondering if in the law there is a historical precedent about you know the loss of life and you don't go i mean is there does any of that exist is there any sort of reverence for the dead uh and casualties that are that exist exists i i you you raise a good point and i actually think that titanic is one of the 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 first times that i'm aware of where a lawmaking body recognized that okay this is really a historic shipwreck that needs to be um, conserved and and maybe we have um, some recovery or salvage but we also have to recognize that you know this is the final resting place for many many souls you know yeah. i think 1500 and and in wrestling with that in that legislation they kind of left it up to uh, the negotiations of the guidelines and the agreement, they're recognizing that you know the U.S. shouldn't be making these decisions unilaterally. It can't protect it unilaterally. It requires international cooperation, and uh, that international cooperation would include the U.K. because it was a U.K. flagged vessel. It would include Canada because it lied on its continental shelf. And it also included France because they were the co-discoverer with the U.S. Um, and and in, in wrestling with this issue, uh, th- do we allow recovery? Do we, um, how do we, how, you know, the, the legislation called for it to be a maritime memorial for those who lost their lives. And... And the idea was, well, how does that how does that work its way into law and policy? Yeah. And and it was interesting because the negotiations of the agreement did not go as quickly as, of course, the private sector Titanic Ventures. They convinced Ifermere to go out and do a salvage, and um, and then um, when they were uh, they actually had a. a an exhibit of their collection because it was their business plan, making money off of exhibitions. And they took it to the the Maritime Museum in Greenwich in the United Kingdom. And that's when the first kind of, because there were still people alive at that time that had survived the Titanic. Wow. And there was, of course, others, descendants of people who lost their lives. And so they, this was, the, the museum was subject to some criticism in the media and by the public and so they decided you know like well let's take this as a learning experience and they set up like polls for people to take surveys when they're coming to the museum how they felt about this and um and and of course they also uh decided to have a conference to talk about wrecks not just titanic but other wrecks and um, and that was actually this, you know, Greenwich 1995. I mean, can, do you know that's Ola? that started the discussion of well, what do we, what do we, what do we do? Do we allow recovery, or do we preserve it in C2? What do we do? So, Ola, I'm I'm just curious, like, how much does it cost to go down and make that initial salvage effort? I mean, it's got to be. I mean, I'm so, just. 
these 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 missions to do salvage exceed a million dollars easily and um and 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 so you know this is you know when they're thinking of their business plan they have a lot of expenses and 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 you know and and carrying that out can be uh, rather challenging and when they were doing this they're also thinking about you know the controversy that they had in greenwich could kind of blow back on their business plan and so uh when that eastern district case came about they first went to france to get an award under salvage by their administrator that they owned the uh, 87 artifacts and they were successful but they also it was clear in that award that they promised to keep the collection together uh, to not sell it off at Sotheby's and they also said that they would limit the salvage to the field of artifacts along the two hull portions when uh, titanic sank which is called the what happened field. was it there's two it kind of broke in half and two the front and the back half kind of ended up uh like a mile or so apart from each other and then there's lots of uh scatter of uh you know artifacts etc from that time and so you know and George Tullock, who was the head of Titanic Ventures at the time, he got this idea, uh, my recollection is from the legislative history of the 86 Act, where I believe it was Dr. Ballard that proposed that don't allow salvage of the two large hull portions, which, you know, were the final resting place of a lot of people. Um, and if you're going to consider recovery or salvage, limit that to the artifact field. Well, George Tullock took that got it into his business plan and that helped him get exclusive salvage rights over Titanic in the Eastern District okay. over that Marax company, which was actually found Clever. to have lied about recovering that wine decanter. <laughs> okay, they hadn't so... actually recovered anything. So uh, and 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 so then it became uh, we we actually when we were negotiating the Titanic agreement, we were, you know, regularly working with RMS Titanic to try to get these this this business plan of of you know that got into the Admiralty Court orders get that put into the agreement one as a, a respect for the decisions that have made interpreting you know the uh, the yeah. 86 Act. Ola, Ola, hang on a second there's, yeah there's 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 a lot here uh, let me just see if I can backtrack a little bit. 1986, sure. the uh, the ship is discovered by Bob Ballard, who is an uh, who is an, is a scientist and an archaeologist, uh, in conjunction with a, a with a with a with a French government agency, right? Yeah, Bob Ballard. Uh, at the time, he was at the Woods Hole Institute, yeah. and uh, and he's an explorer and a, an oceanographer. Right. Oh, oceanographer. Okay. Yeah. So you got yeah. these guys. They discover the wreck in '86, as you said, '85, and within a year or almost a year, uh, the United States passes a law to govern how this wreck will be handled, at least with respect to the United States Congress and and our country, and. And tell us the name of that act, and just, what was the name of that? 
So that was the 1986 RMS Titanic Maritime Memorial Act. Okay, this is and, what you got and, brought and into by Craig McClay. You can McClay. hear how it's like it wants it recognized as a maritime memorial, and it calls on us to negotiate with France, Canada, and the UK on an agreement right. and guidelines. So, um, so this uh, is for, where you get involved. You get at when you're young. What a cool, what a cool job at NOAA. You yeah, know, you got, you got shipwreck a, guy. You got shipwreck guy. You got yeah. to work on the monitor, which was one of the ironclad ships from the uh, from the Civil War, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so you've got to create these guidelines. You've got to start negotiating. So here you are, basically a new attorney, a new federal attorney. And was it part of your job to work out and begin contacting the French and the Canadians and the British and starting to put together what I think you've referred to so far as the Titanic agreement. Is that what was going on? Yeah. Uh, You know, under the act, State Department had the lead on the agreement and NOAA was supposed to be part of that consultation. And then NOAA had the lead on developing the guidelines in consultation with State Department. So the first thing I did was um, get a point of contact at the State Department, uh, whose name was Bob Blumberg, and we became partners in uh, negotiating Titanic, uh, and we rode that together uh, and through the the meetings in Greenwich in '95 and '96, and then um, that was a catalyst for the so, negotiation of the UNESCO Convention. So okay, a lot of the negotiations so, all right, so were that, parallel. All right, right. So you got. So you've got you guys spent ten years working on the Titanic Agreement. Then the statute is passed in '86, and you're talking about 1995, 1996. So you've spent ten years on the. Uh, what the hell was that like? Well, you know, it there was a lag right after '86. The U.S. reached out to these other nations, and there was no interest. So there was a lag time. It wasn't until Craig McLean contacted me in like 1992 that the, the there was a rekindling because of the Admiralty case in the Eastern District. And that started to, where I reached out to State Department and we started reaching out to uh, the other nations. And there was a little bit of a lag there until UK had that controversy by exhibiting the Titanic. And that uh-huh. was the real catalyst where now it's not the U.S. calling for a meeting, it's the U.K. And you know, so the U.S. came and, and so did the others. And that's the start of the Titanic negotiations I, as well as the UNESCO Convention. I just want to throw, I just want to, I just have to ask. And it's, I just have, did the movie change things? I think the movie got the public interest in Titanic over the moon. Prior to that, I would say the governments, the governments were interested once they realized that there was this, you know, salvage case. But once the public started having real interest Titanic, largely because of Cameron's movie, I think the public interest just exploded and 
you know, we live in a world where our legislators and our government pay attention to what the public is interested in. And it and it helped immensely. I really do believe Ni- that. 1997, and- James Cameron released uh, the epic film Titanic. I remember it came in two VHSs as a kid. It was a long movie. Yeah. A Titanic of a film, really. And it was a huge budget. Uh, but man, uh, I have to say I was a kid at the time. And I was already a big Bob Ballard fan. First of all, Ola, I just think it's so cool that you got to be a part of all of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was... I'm honored, yeah. I was was following along as a child and was hugely inspired, not knowing, of course, what was going on behind the scenes. Um, But, you know, I just remember when that movie came out, all of a sudden, everybody knew about the Titanic. And I just have to imagine, you're right, like, that would change the politics you know, in the English speaking world and probably around, you know, globally. Yeah. And it, and it's kind of like, um, we had already started the government process, but when you're briefing the politicals, when you're going to the public, that movie brought, uh, an amplifier to the interest (laughs) and, uh, Uh, and, and, and Cameron, you know, he went ahead and, uh, and did a, a documentary and Ballard, you know, he just gets the most credit because he 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 started things off. Uh, he he continued to have uh, um, people getting interested in Titanic, you know, not just Congress, but uh, the general public. And uh, he's been a, a great asset in uh, the development of the law and policies um, protecting Titanic. Uh, and but it's it's a really Titanic is a really good case study because, you know, it involves law of the sea, um, historic preservation law, but also the 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 private international maritime law of salvage. And then all this intersects. And so how do we integrate, um, you know, historic preservation law into the Titanic when it's already being subject to salvage law. And that was really challenging and, uh, and rewarding because, you know, and, you know, in part because of the business plan of Tulloch, which reflected the 86 act and its legislative history and Ballard's guidance that got wrapped into uh, the maritime law of salvage. And even though they have recovered now, they have done several salvage expeditions and they have 10,000 artifacts uh, at least, uh, but they're still 95% of Titanic still lies on the seabed preserved in C2 and the whole portions have not been disturbed and no artifacts have been uh, re- recovered. And that's the more the recent um, the controversy is how RMST now wants to, you know, kind of pierce the hull and um, yeah. recover the Marconi equipment. So let's talk about and, that for a second, because yeah. now we're coming up into modern days and and uh, there's been so this company makes a claim. It it establishes itself as the rightful salvor of the Titanic, consistent with these agreements. And basically, they're not going to sell it at Sotheby's, but but they can exhibit it. That's kind of the model. And uh, the company went bankrupt. I understand Titanic Ventures fails as a company and is re reemerges as RMT or 
or RMS Titanic Incorporated, right? Well, they they actually um, they they changed their name from Titanic Ventures to RMS Titanic sometime in the mid to late 1990s. All right. Uh, the, the the bankruptcy uh, really resulted in a sale of the company and its name to new owners. Right. Um, and and actually, uh, you know, stepping back in a little bit of the history, remember I was saying how we worked with George Tullock and the president of uh, the, the original president of RMS Titanic Inc. in making sure that we agreed that we were respecting the court orders, we were respecting his business plan, which he interpreted as the act. Um, and this and it worked well. And we had uh, negotiations going from kind of informally in 1995 and then started more formally uh, in 96, 97. And we really concluded at the end of uh, 1999. And at that time, there was a takeover, a uh, stockholder takeover at RMS Titanic, oh. where they they threw out George Tullock. Um, uh, P.H. Nargelet used to work at Ifremer and um, he was, you know, helping run the ships and, and George Tullock drew him away to work for RMS Titanic Inc. exclusively. Uh, they had a good team and we had a good plan, but this uh, new president, Arnie Geller, um, he thought uh, that uh, they could make more money if they could uh, pierce the hull and recover artifacts. Okay, so in, and uh, uh, now this and, is a controversial uh, move because up until now, they've collected thousands of artifacts from the debris field lying on the seafloor, but as you said, have not gone in, not dis not cut the wreck apart to get into inside the ship and, and recover the cool stuff. But as I understand, I've, in getting ready for the show, uh, Ola was there was a case. It, this is in the Eastern District, uh, I guess, the case in, in Virginia. Uh, yeah. The question is whether this company can cut a hole in the Titanic, get inside and get the Marconi Telegraph, where the last messages from the ship as it was going down were broadcast uh, out into the world and reached the Carpathia, which uh, resulted in the savior of a bunch of people. But this next step of cutting into the rack goes to court in May. And the company wins, right? They the judge awards them the right to cut a hole in the Titanic and take out the uh, telegraph. Is that correct? I, I want to modify it just a All little right. bit. You know, there. You know, when there was the takeover, and word was getting out that uh, they were going to go and do this salvage to pierce the hull, the judge got wind of it and immediately issued an order in two thousand reminding them that there's an order saying you can only collect from the debris field, you cannot penetrate the hull. And, um, and so they didn't. Uh, but now fast forward, what RMST uh, has recently you know, proposed and the judge in May amended that order to allow limited recovery because they they said you know we're going to go down there and you know they were making it sound more like um a careful uh limited intrusive surgery to remove the marconi equipment and um and uh they convinced the court that 
that was possible, that was in the public interest. So she amended the 2000 order to allow for this. Now, that was despite the objections from the United States and NOAA that pointed out that, you know, the, that order had really been kind of codified in the agreement. Um, that, that whole idea about let's leave the two large whole portions undisturbed. Uh, you can enter, you can go take pictures, but they has to be done in a way that doesn't result in uh, disturbing the, the, the whole portions. Right or the interior, much less recovery okay. of artifacts. What, what year did she amend the order to allow them to, to this, surgically? This year, May, May 20, okay. May, May 2020. Of, of 2020. Now, were you in court? Yeah. Now, this is in U.S. This is a federal district court judge, uh, Judge yeah. Rebecca Beach Smith in Norfolk, yeah. Virginia, who has been the judge over the Titanic wreck for many years, I understand. Yes. And this court has had jurisdiction over all things about the Titanic going back to you know, 30 years, that, right? Yeah. Or 25 yeah, years. Yeah. Um, were you in court when she, did you participate in that? And what was your take Can on I just it? say that's so weird? Yeah. <laughs> that is just so bizarre. As a non-lawyer, as the non-lawyer on this podcast, yeah. I find that really weird, guys. What's that part? Well, it's just that they would, funny. they would just, that you'd have this like long-term career, long relationship over this case and no this kid. judge. No shit. That is just very interesting to me. So, so remember I told you that Craig McLean, well, we got tried to ask DOJ to intervene in the case in the 1990s, yes. and, and the, the DOJ attorneys uh, just said, no, we don't have sufficient interest. Uh, I think that was wrong, and I was later proved right. <laughs> and, but fast forward, so um, when we, uh, there, was a, there was an expedition to Titanic that was going to be somewhat of a, a tourist exhibit and it was going to be coming out of England and they were they were basically and they were charging I think somewhere between 50 75k it might have been 100k but per person to go on this ex, uh, this mission to it's like see going to Titanic. space basically they weren't going to salvage anything they were just going to look at it maybe take some pictures and right. when you say and, that you pay fifty thousand dollars to go see this thing does that mean you're going to get in a summary and go down and look at it or you're going to watch a TV screen on a ship you, 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 they, they will send the submersibles down the ROVs with live feed so you can see it up on deck Hell, I could you watch know. that in my living yeah. room. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that seemed like a good deal to me. That is yeah, a bad yeah. buy. But there's, and well, there's some people going to the moon, you know, <laughs> but they actually will be uh, on the moon. So anyway, so there, there's this issue, and and then the State Department and the Navy and NOAA were very concerned about, you know, because RMST was saying, no, you can't do that. You you need permission to visit the site and take pictures. And uh, they had gotten convinced the court to kind of uh, have an order that required that. And uh, and that was being challenged because under general international law of the sea, there's a recognized to be a right of navigation. And that right of navigation includes doing surveys and doing pictures. Okay. And uh, and so in that case, the U.S. intervened, and with the the tourist company, uh, they won against RMS Titanic, and they lost that you know right to require people to get a permit to take. It's pictures. a litigious bunch. Yeah, this is a yeah. little bit of so you got the tourist. A lot of lawsuits. A lot of Fun. lawsuits. You got the tourist company. 
trying to go out there and sell, you know, visits to the ship without and, a permit. I guess with, well, without, without the approval without of the, RMT, without the, yeah. the so they're the a, Titanic they're basically Inc. asserting that they own the viewscape. That I guess you, that they wanna, can they can sell a trip, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, okay, like if I'm gonna and, they, and, and their argument was well, since we agreed not to sell the stuff at Sotheby's, we got to make money somehow, and that that was the uh, you know kind of like the pitch. All right, so this and, is uh, what that's so a, we that's we conclude a, the agreement in nine you know at the end of 1999. And in early 2000, we were sued by the people who took over RMST, Arnie Geller. And we're actually, if the original complaint was against Olaf Armour and Bob Blumberg, and after DOJ explained, no, when you sue the government, you don't sue the staffers, you, you sue the secretaries of the commerce and state, and we got all that. And and uh, the court was convicted, because they were trying to stop the agreement from coming into place and the guidelines from coming into place and uh the the doj convinced them that you know what this is not right because you know we don't have implementing legislation the uh the agreement hasn't entered into force uh there's no guidelines and uh the court agreed with the united states but as the case against us was dismissed uh the judge said well wait a minute you know you're not going anywhere because we want you to give us advice on how to um, oversee uh, RMS Titanic uh, salvage in the future. And I remember the first time I got called into the hearing, the original judge, Clark, was a very old man by that time. And I think he had actually retired, but he retained sitting on this case with his newly appointed chief judge rebecca smith and i remember coming in and getting scolded by the judges for not informing them of this before and you know bob and i just took it took it and then afterwards we went to doj and said i told you the judge wanted us here <laughs> and now we're here and we're not going anywhere and that began the the relationship of us it's kind of a it, uh, under the law they called it an amicus curry a friend of the court so we're not weren't a formal party uh but um but we were there and and when uh you know rms titanic they did a pitch to argue that they owned all of the artifacts under the law of fines which i found ironic since they didn't find it. It was found by Eifermeer and Bob Ballard. But uh, they had this argument, and uh, at the district and circuit court levels, they said, no, you know, you, you, when you originally filed this, you know, you said under the law of fines and under the salvage, but you've been operating under the law of salvage ever since then. Um, you know, the law of fines does not apply to this wreck. If you want to get title to these, you have to seek a salvage award. And in that Fourth Circuit, decision it noted that uh there is clearly a public interest in titanic as reflected in the 86 act and the negotiations of an agreement and therefore the district court judge has the authority to condition the award of title to reflect that public interest and rmst saw the writing on the wall and so they approached uh, the u.s government said okay well let's let's negotiate some covenants and conditions on the salvage award and through that process we negotiated uh it's you know it's like 70 pages and it's very detailed um and and we were able to 
you know, take provisions of historic preservation law that were in the international agreement and reflected in the 86 Act and in the guidelines and get them incorporated into these covenants uh, uh, in the agreement, covenants and conditions for the award, which would require them to, even though they own the artifacts, they still have to keep it in a collection and they can't break it up and you know sell off individual artifacts. They do have the authority to sell the collection as a whole provided the buyer agrees to all these covenants and conditions. And there was, and, and at the time we're negotiating this, they really wanted to do a lot of bankruptcy provisions. And, you know, in the case of bankruptcy, and I said, that's wise. And I uh, immediately got uh, uh, the, the guy at Commerce that is a bankruptcy law guru, Russ Craig, who unfortunately recently passed away. But he he came in with me and we got these covenants and conditions that if they go bankrupt, this is how it's going to work. And and so that they could not be sold off as part of the bankruptcy assets. Right. Because that in the, the public interest in bankruptcy is get the creditors paid off. Well, those covenants conditions ended up being respected. And uh, the, the, the company that ended up buying the, the hedge fund people that bought RMST, uh, the Judge Smith in the Eastern District would not approve the sale or transfer unless and until they agreed to subject themselves to the personal jurisdiction of the court and abide by the covenants and conditions. So that was uh, kind of uh, what we thought of victory because this has never, there is no other case of salvage in the world that has these historic preservation covenants and conditions that reflect historic preservation law integrated into maritime law it's 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 a it's, it's a one-off and it's i think largely because of its titanic and the public interest um that has is surrounds it do you think there'll be another one you know another you know that this will be a precedent setting situation well well you know it's interesting because i think most you know most european nations for example uh they you know there's the the unesco convention which was negotiated while we were negotiating titanic and um and it really the UNESCO, uh, let's just pause real fast that's yeah, the united, united nations, nations what is that uh, education uh, science and cultural organization okay um and when we were negotiating Titanic, there was an effort to try to get this at the International Maritime Organization, which has rules about salvage. Uh, but most people, the IMO rejected the idea. They said, we deal with ships on top of the water. Ships at the bottom of the ocean, that's more of a UNESCO cultural thing. You know, because, and that's the, that's the question here is, you have Titanic, is this resource more like um, you know, uh, oil, gas, mining resource that needs to be exploited uh, for the public interest and in the commercial value? Or is this something more like, you know, uh, the pyramids and the, uh, or an endangered species or a coral or a whale? Yeah, so where, what do you think you know, it is? And, and, and I think it's, yeah, think? it's more the endangered species. It's more that lateral. But, but being an American... <laughs> capitalist despite my my upbringing by danish folks um we 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 negotiated in the unesco um 
the the opportunity for private sector if a nation such as the united states or uk ireland we the united states isn't a lot of it is the common law countries that um you know came out of the english tradition right we see the benefits of possible private sector role and private sector financing for public interest as long as that you know and the Titanic is somewhat of a case study. So, yeah. so far, and, we've used private money to recover this, but the public still has access, you know, yeah. the museums. And well, stuff. And, true. I, I want to, I want to, uh, because I'm already, I want to, we're going to have a future visioning session in a minute. We're settling in, Ola. Yes. Settling sure. into uh, the, the cool part of the show, uh, what I think is the cool part of the show, where we get to kind of reflect on things. But uh, you, on our previous phone call when we were prepping for the show, you you mentioned that you had actually gone to the place, I think, in Atlanta where they have the facility. Yeah. Um, can you talk to our audience about wh how they're doing it and and your experience going there? Yeah. Uh, you know, George Tulloch, very, from the very get-go, he wanted his business plan, he wanted it to be the make money off of museum receipts and that required them to do proper conservation of the artifacts so that they would survive and be able to be displayed at a museum whether it be traveling or permanent and he, at, uh, he hired paul mardikian uh, a french fellow who uh, did an, an amazing job uh, and he ended up leaving and getting taken to work on the conservation of the hunley which might be another show uh, but um, and they have had good they are following the international cons museum standards for conservation and curation are being followed. Uh, you know, people could criticize them. Maybe you need to spend more money, but uh, they are meeting the minimum standards. And I was kind of blown away when I went to the see like sheet music from Titanic had been salvaged off of the seabed. And conserved and curated. You know, I now, bet we know why. Never, what they would song? never do a traveling exhibit, but maybe they they could be seen maybe in a permanent exhibit somewhere. Well, we know that the band was playing. The band was playing as, as, as they were going down. Yeah. As she went down. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's uh, gnarly. So let me see if I got. I'm following you along, Ola, because I think I'm getting the drift of what's happening here. So it, you know, for the general public, Tyler, you know, we saw the movie. I think there was a documentary that Ballard did that was fabulous oh, about the finding of the it's a classic. It's a cl eighty. It's just yeah. so good. National Geographic right. Explorer right. grew up on that. Did uh, you? Oh yeah, I rented it. I just I rented that thing probably three or four times a year. You know, did you really? It's <laughs> unbelievable. Video rental place. Yeah, I the lighting. But that's how the public understands the wreck. We've seen that. There's movies. There's I, don't, I doubt very few people have been to an exhibit. I've never been to one. But underneath this incredible wreck, the incredible popularity of the subject, is this ongoing 30 years since 19 and since the, since the mid 80s, really, since it was discovered, litigation and legal. Uh, maneuvering and international agreements and the United Nations involves and treaties are involved trying to figure out I mean this is a lot to do about one ship yeah you know what else I'm thinking about you is know? how on the one hand Ola the movie and the popularization of the Titanic would benefit the case for conservation 
But it also benefits the case for exploitation <laughs> because mm -hmm. there's all of this additional interest. So I'm sure that the I mean, I remember uh, another childhood memory was going to the Chicago Museum of uh, industry or whatever it is. There's a natural history museum there that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, science and industry. Scientists and, okay. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. the, they had this exhibit was in, the Titanic exhibit was in. And I mean, I was like, sh I mean, it, they only, there were a few artifacts, you know. It, I, I was, even then, a little like, really? Sketchy about it. There was something yeah. about it that made me didn't just feel right. It didn't, it didn't vibe right. right. Especially because yeah. I grew up on the Ballard documentary, which, I mean, from the very beginning, the the rhetoric that I was getting was that this is a grave site and it's, there's kind of a somber perspective. There's there's shoes and, you know, right. clothing and things like that, that you're personal it, effects. Yeah. Bracelets. Jewelry, yeah. That it, it just you're, it's not you. I don't know. It to, to, it's interesting that it falls under salvage law, you know, because I, when yeah. I think of salvage law, I think of that ship that tipped over in the Savannah. Right. The car carrier. Yeah. That just, that they just salvaged. Yeah. They're salvaging yeah. that one. That's a right. salvage That's job. That's a salvage. This is more like, I think, the pyramid. It is different. And I think you're right when you say, you know, if we go dig up a, 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 a Roman galleon or a Roman ship, we're looking at it for scientific and historic purposes. This recovery process started when survivors of the wreck still were alive. These are personal effects of real people. The sheet music, it's, I mean, this is different. It's not gold yeah. bars on the bottom like Fisher was doing out at, on, on these Spanish galleons that he was yeah. salvaging and pulling up it know, reminds me and stuff. This is different. It reminds me, I, I wrote down National Park. I was just rewatching the National Parks documentary. It's on PBS. Ken Burns, Dayton Duncan, great great yeah. documentary yeah and yeah. um you know uh for the first thing that comes to mind is like mesa verde and not like it's kind of similar you know some of these sites were so uh special from the onset that people were like hey we got to do something about it. we cannot treat this place poor we like set it aside don't yosemite let, valley yosemite valley exactly Hatch -hatch and there was no there was no like vision about the National Park Service yet. It reminds me of this in the sense there was no vision for the Titanic to be a, for, you know, we're having this conversation on ASPN years later. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it seems to me that it's it. We are having a broad. It falls into this broader construct of what we choose to protect. And I'm thinking of the 9-11 yeah. uh, crash site of that airplane. Yeah. That is a national park in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, and it's a you can imagine. I bet if you salvaged a piece of that aircraft, you could probably auction so, it off. Some, it, yeah. somebody yeah. would want to buy that and have it. You bet. Yeah. And by yeah. designating it, you say no. We are we are not treating this that way. So Ola, I, yeah, no, I think one hundred percent. And I think what I want to ask you is now that the judge has ruled in. In May 2020, uh, Judge Rebecca Beach Smith has decided that they can get inside the ship, cut a hole in it, and get out the telegraph. How does how how do you feel personally about that? Having worked on this your whole career, are you bummed out by that decision? How do, what how did you react when you heard the news? Well, I I was disappointed, um, and and in part it's not so much that. 
the uh, the salvage, uh, you know, a careful salvage of whether it be the Marconi equipment or maybe if there was like a mailbag sitting open and you could pull pull it out without disturbing anything else that that might 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 be worth. But the thing is, is we went through this long negotiation. Uh, there were there were camps that thought there should be no salvage and everything should be left as a maritime memorial and not recovered. But we had already had the French expedition uh, salvage it, and uh, the French were not really excited about having an international agreement that said no salvage. You can understand that. And then we in the U.S. were in the same boat. We have some salvage courts, and so we we kind of took this approach of like, okay, let's treat the the ninety five percent of the wreck site is going to be treated as a maritime memorial with no salvage and limit it to the this you know artifact field debris field and and that's enough to satisfy the public interest and in maybe able to go to a museum uh for those people that uh you know don't have access to uh you know the tvs and the the, the documentaries and things like that or maybe they prefer that approach but but that's the balancing and i'm not saying yeah. We got it right. And I, mm. and, I think and, you did and, very well, though. I think, well, you know, we could have tried <laughs> to, to, to shut down the whole thing, but it was that's not the way the negotiations came out. And and I was disappointed that the judge, um, you know, uh, if you look at her decision, she said, OK, I'm amending this 2000 order. Well, that order that she's amending kind of got codified into the agreement. And, and, and the U.S. Justice Department and NOAA at the hearings were arguing that, you know, wait a minute, this is inconsistent with the agreement and the 2000 order. And she just said, you know, U.S., you know, you're, you're not a party and uh, I'm limiting my decision here to salvage law, not the agreement and the, the 2017 act that implements it. Yeah. And uh, so now the U.S. has intervened, intervened. They are requesting to be a party. And my hope is that the, the judge will, um, you know, uh, accept them as a, a party and uh, rule that, you know, while she has this ruling under salvage law, that she agrees that the agreement and the act uh, uh, apply and that RMST has to get an authorization and that would result in them not being able to recover the Marconi can I, equipment. Can and I, I have ask... said, if, if there's a public, if this started a public discussion of like, well, maybe, you know, we should have this, well, that's fine. But then that requires us to go and amend the agreement and, you know, and uh, I, I'm open to the discussion, but I, I, I agree with you. I think we got it right the first time under All the right. circumstances. All right, counselor, I have a question. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> uh, what what let's give the judge the benefit of the doubt for a second and say that, you know what? Well, let me ask, is there an argument to be made where um, by kind of let's just say I'm using by inviting the United States to join the thing like formally? Um, does that s strengthen the. Uh, legal standing of the government here is there a is there a a bigger is there like a picture here because one could see I was like oh the door you know there's a little crack maybe in the armor uh, yeah. but could this actually be like uh, you know 
a chess move where it's really trying to lock it down? I, th I think it, it may be, and, and in my mind it might be, and this is because throughout the history of being at hearings, I've heard the judge uh, over and over talk about how, you know, uh, I need, you know, pleadings in front of me, I need a real case in controversy, because, you know, the, the, the salvage cases are not the same as most other cases. In most other cases, you have at least two parties, a plaintiff and a defendant. In the salvage case, you have the plaintiff, RMS Titanic, and the defendant is the shipwreck. Yeah, I love that and, part. And who speaks for the shipwreck? Well, this judge, the first with Judge Clark <laughs> and then later Judge Smith, they have been doing a great job of not only being the judge, but also trying to do the public interest. And when they, and I think when uh, we were in there for a case and it got dismissed and she said, wait a minute, <laughs> you're gonna come as my advisor. Uh, I think that made it better. Right. But I think if you're thinking about the, you know, the jurisprudence and the precedent down the road, I think having the United States representing the public interest of Titanic under the agreement and the act is stronger yeah. as a party yeah. as opposed to just an amicus friend of the court. So in all of these years up till now, the United States has not been a formal party to the proceedings. It was the company that wanted to salvage it versus mm -hmm. the Titanic ship and asserting their rights over the ship. With, with a few friends. and with, Yeah, with a few yeah. friends. And you guys and your group of guys is working on international agreements and, and UNESCO and trying to set up the standards of how the... And I do think you guys did a pretty good job. You cut the deal. Um, the salvagers get to go pick things up from the debris field. They've got t thousands of things that they've got. They've conserved them you know, to museum standards, and they get to make money off of the exhibit, exhibition of those, charging tickets, whatever they want to do. But what they can't do is sell it off and they have to keep it together. So you feel like that's a pretty good outcome. Can I, did we cover, forgive me. Yeah, we talked, how the, well, I've got a couple things. Let's yeah. see, where are we at on time? Okay, we have time. Okay. No, Two, I, there's, there is one thing I want to get in before we close off. Though. Oh, about, by all means, we have, there are no okay. rules here. Oh, so take so unlike the Titanic, this is a free flowing operation. <laughs> So uh, Craig McLean's Office of Exploration partnered with Bob Ballard as a return to the Titanic. And I think that ended up being with uh, Nat Geo and others. And uh, the principal investigator was Jeremy Wyrick. And when they came back from that, uh, that, that mission, uh, I remember Jeremy saying, you know, Ola, uh, you know, when we get the laws and the policies all in place, I think we really need to revisit this recovery of salvage in the, the, the artifact field or the debris field. And he showed me a picture of two boots and their proximity and the way they laid on the seabed, you know that there was a body. even though we don't see any uh, bones or cloth, but the, the leather and the shoes, that was the final resting place. And that's the kind of artifact, even if it's in the debris field, that that's grave robbing, you know? Yeah. And and so there was like, if we're going to go one direction or another, we need to go the direction of 
maritime memorial in situ preservation respect uh, the, the final resting place as opposed to opening up the hole and letting marconi equipment come out yeah it's it really is it's an interesting uh it's an interesting i i know right now i in europe to this day uh you know amateur archaeologists with metal detectors will go out to like world war ii areas where there was fighting and uncover uh remains and it's yeah. it happens all over the place and yeah um there's the a lot of these artifacts end up on ebay yeah um yeah and so i just i i think that you raise a really excellent point um and i just think i think that what we need is i think titanic needs to be a national park yeah you know but it's not in the jurisdiction or maybe an international park international park i think well i I, early in my career after we had the agreement i had said this arguably is the first high seas marine protected area of a cultural resource as opposed to a natural resource. And I said, and it's model about how you do jurisdiction under the, um, the law of the sea is a great model. Since then, uh, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the 1972 World Heritage Convention that applies to both national and natural and cultural. And a lot of our parks are you know and uh and, and papahanamuakuakea marine national monument are world heritage sites and the unesco there was a paper that came out saying now is the time because generally it was it's unesco's world heritage started terrestrially because we're terrestrial beings and then it started including like submerged sites right along the coast and then they started extending out to the continental shelf of nations but it didn't have provisions really for you know the high seas in the area and and places like titanic and so they they were calling for we need like a world heritage convention for natural and cultural resources and one of the sites they said was a good example was titanic okay that now as you're now that you are out of NOAA and out of the front lines of working on this issue as a lawyer for the government, uh, you're at the Ocean Foundation. Are you pushing for this World Heritage Site, basically an international national park at this point well, for the Titanic? We, What's, we, what do you, you want? Know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of what I like to do now is what you guys are doing. It's ocean literacy. It's education and outreach to make people aware. And I, and I really appreciate this opportunity because you have brought to bear – uh, the the problems with you know souvenir collecting and salvage and looting you know it's uh, you know uh, th- there's a larger public interest and in getting the public to care about that you know you're helping serve that and that's one of the things I'm trying to do with um, the Ocean Foundation uh, they do a lot of work on ocean acidification and ocean literacy and they've asked me to help uh, integrate underwater cultural heritage into their um, their mission and their work. And yes, if you right. go to that page, the annotated bibliography, you will see that, yeah, this idea about having uh, uh, world heritage sites in the uh, the high seas and uh, uh, the area underneath the high seas, we think is a good one. And uh, Titanic being a good example of a high seas MPA for cultural and uh, the Sargasso Sea. Uh, maybe being a good high seas MPA, yeah. or at least part of it because it's so big. Uh, but yeah, now that the, the work at the Ocean Foundation is uh, is trying to um, 
you know, kind of carry on. Because uh, after 30 years of uh, legal work, I, uh, I think maybe we can make more uh, progress in the law if we can do better education and outreach. Well said. And for all of our listeners out there who work in, you know, like all of them, that would be 100% of you who are not shipwreck uh, guys like Ola. Uh, <laughs> maybe we have a shipwreck guy out there. Who knows? But, uh, you know, how might this relate? How might this story relate to you? What comes to mind to me is that this part, this is like this, this international, this is this ungovernable area uh, out there where we are reliant on treaties and not all nations are party and we don't all speak the same languages and it's, and it gets bogged down in 30 years of, you know, the, it makes, I think a lot of sense for us to us, the global community of people who might want to see sites like this protected so that they're not looted. Uh, you know, that, we have a, a mechanism Come and a vision and a way to do that yeah. collectively. Uh, yeah. It seems like a good idea to me. Yeah. seems like a good idea to me. I got, uh, Ola, let me ask you one question. Cause there's a character in the story. There's a couple of characters. In yes. The story I have a couple have, of those too. That are, that are interesting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, you told us something that pre-interview I did not know the white star line, which is what the Titanic sailed for was owned by. Uh, was not a British company, after all. It was owned by J.P. Morgan. So is J.P. Morgan, was the, is that, why hasn't his, him and his estate, as the, as the owners of the ship, been involved, or have they? Well, see, so, so J.P. Morgan set up the company, which in, in England, so it is a British company, okay. because Legally. The, the, the laws, it's labor laws and other laws were more favorable than England than the U.S. And so he and he had one of his companies, you know, it's this is, the, you know, what rich people do. They have these companies and they have other companies. So he was behind all this. But um, after Titanic and a couple of other things, the White Star Line uh, company really evaporated. I mean, the, the there is a, um, I think there's a, uh, uh, one of the cruise lines has maybe a, a residual vested interest, but under salvage law, um, you, you have to, you know, when you're salvaging a wreck, you're supposed to be doing it for the owners. And they, uh, they do a notice to the world saying any of the owners that come, well, the cruise ship didn't ever kind of come in and assert any rights of ownership to the Titanic. So that's how that there works. Was, that's how you assert it. There, yeah. Put a notice yeah, the, in the you, paper. You would, you would respond and intervene in the case to say, look, you know, this is ours. You know, this is ours. And then uh, <laughs> then you would. Uh, we should have come know. forward, Tyler. I would have yeah. yeah. totally. I thought I'd have known that. <laughs> there, now, I, there was one company, the Liverpool uh, Insurance Company. It was Liverpool and something else, but it was an insurance company. And I believe they just insured the hull. And probably when they paid off on that insurance to the White Star yeah. Line for the loss of the hull, they they get the successor and in interest. Right. Uh, and there is uh, some sealed agreement between that insurance company and RMST uh, that the public has uh, not uh, been aware of. But uh, I think wow, the judge. I, I want to know about that. I know. Do you have any suspicions yeah. about the arrangement that was reached there? 
Now, I, I mean, my come on, guess when, is, when the bar talk, you know, what's that, the bar talk about you know, they, the Titanic they, lawyers? They must have promised the insurance company something. Surely, <laughs> to not you know. file a claim and mess with their... Yeah, to like, let us let us carry this on and uh, we'll do something for you. But because uh, otherwise, you know, you don't really, you know, if it's all one sided, it's not really agreement. But uh, we'll, we'll maybe we'll find out one day. Maybe one day that'll get unsealed. Well, I've got, you know... Uh, Maybe someday I'll have we'll have the opportunity to have Bob Ballard on, but well, yeah, that yeah, day has not cool. come. So until then, Ola, would you regale me? Yeah, I want to tell story. I did. I have the same thought. Like, what was the coolest part of working on this for the last thirty years? Yeah. What did you get I to would do? Love to... What what stands out? Come on, give us a like regale us with a couple of stories of of the Titanic lawyer world. Oh, I, you know, I think it was all the benchmarks of, you know, like getting the, the covenants and conditions, being able to negotiate that with RMST and then seeing the judge pleased with it and it becoming an order. Uh, I, one of the, I remember uh, the, the, the justice the, was really the, the U.S. attorney in, uh, that was for the, in the Eastern District area. He was really being like the nice guy approach after Arnie Geller took over. And and we we set up an informal meeting, you know, down in Norfolk. And then when RMST filed these papers on uh, myself and Blumberg, that's when the the Justice Department, uh, AUSA, Larry Leonard at the time, he just got really mad and realized, okay, these guys are snakes. <laughs> and uh, that's when uh, DOJ really started gearing up and saying, okay, we got to take this serious, you know. And, uh, and that wow. was, that was an interesting time. Um, and, uh, Very and I cool. would say when, uh, you know, uh, when, you know, Congress passed uh, the 2017 act, I had, you know, tingles up and down my spine. I mean, we've, you know, we've been working on this for, you know, decades and finally we've got the agreement. Now we've got implementing legislation. And then I retired in uh, September last, you know, last September, uh, and then, but it was like, I think November, December that, you know, the U.S. government agreed, yep, yep, this 2017 act is sufficient implementing legislation, and we're depositing our signed agreement so that it enters into force, and, and that was like, uh, that was something that uh, I would, I would like to have celebrated, uh, and we, we talked about getting a celebration, but with uh, the pandemic, it's, you know, been impossible to get together uh, and raise a glass, and now, in the interim, now we have this whole new thing about the salvage of the, the Marconi. So there may be the, the celebrations may be uh, down the road. <laughs> we'll see how that all comes out. Well, but I got to say, the, hopefully the right thing happens. You know? you know, I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the way technology is going. We, we cover there is so much autonomous uh, technology now that can go around the, the ocean and it's only going to be a matter of time. It's like the cost to actually go down there, go out to the site. I mean, obviously, you got to know where it is. I realize that yeah. that's a thing. But uh, at some point in the future, it will be inevitable because of the way the technology is going. That, and I realize it's very hard. It's a long ass way down. But I'm pretty confident that there's going to be an attempt made or, you know, we'll have the technology for people to go out and do this stuff. And, um, 
I think it's getting cheaper. In fact, that's why I think when earlier in the show you mentioned that lag between when Ballard originally had the discovery and then this kind of um, interest in going down. I, I suspect that had something to do with the fact that this was an extremely challenging and innovative discovery um, yeah. initially, and uh, this kind of thing was brand new to science and to archaeology. So it took some time for these techniques to be and technology, you know, the ROVs were brand new. That was huge. Being able to like tether a thing and send it out. And now you don't even, you know, it's just, it's, you can control all this stuff from the surface. Hell, I think Ballard is even talking about controlling these things from the mainland, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I just, it's just a matter of time. So I, I really do hope Peter that we can, yeah, you know, let's get this thing let's get some rules that are that are do right by the people that perished well that's been ola's job is to right do right but get yeah. get the rules down get the agreements get the and here's first of all i think we should pause and and make a toast here to uh ah. the senior british uh wireless operator on board the titanic who was sitting at that Marconi Telegraph during the sinking process and sending out the distress signals. His name was John George Jack Phillips. He was born in April 11th, 1887. He died in 1912, which is the sinking of the ship. He dies on board the ship. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, just after his birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and But he was the wireless operator who was sitting at the desk. So tell us about this Marconi Telegraph and why these guys want it. Is this... Would this, I guess, I guess if you're trying to put it in a museum, you want to go see that? Is that, is that the draw? Well, they, the they think that, that it, that's the draw. Um, you know, Noah uh, got um, some expert witnesses, uh, Dave Conlon from the National Park Service, who has uh, helped Noah with archaeological services and expeditions uh, in the past, as well as uh, Paul Johnston from the Smithsonian. And, and I think both of them, along with the NOAA, agreed that, you know, this, you know, this was not worth harming, disturbing the wreck to get into a museum. You know, there's, there, uh, it, 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 there, there's other available. Yeah, this is unique because it's a Titanic. But as far as a museum piece, uh, you know, Paul Johnston is the curator at the Smithsonian for the, you know, shipwrecks and trains and cars and other forms of transportation. And, uh, and you know, and it's, this is just not the type of thing that they would encourage to be recovered so they could put it in a museum. Well, it strikes me that once you're inside, I mean, once you break that seal of the hull, all of a sudden you're, you're in. And uh, the other thing that strikes me is enforcement because once you're inside the ship how do you keep track of stuff i mean i it just seems like it's a good i just like the hands-off policy yeah um, i think it was really smart uh you know don't don't this is ridiculous yeah well, we, I think we've developed a good model for mostly in situ preservation with limited recovery. I think there are other models. Uh, there's an Estonia agreement um, where, you know, no one's allowed to uh, recover anything or, or even uh, uh, enter inside the hull. It's a, a ferry that uh, sunk with uh, many lives on board. And, uh, 
And there, an, another example might be the, you know, we, we use this a lot in, uh, the, the government uses this in its pleadings, you know, um, the USS Arizona, you know, you wouldn't right. allow people to go in and, um, you know, somebody says, well, you know what, my, you know, my, I may have private property, my grandfather's ring may be on there. It's like, yeah, really, you're going to let someone penetrate the hull no, of the U.S. You know what the answer is? The answer is the ring a, is on there. a family there. heirloom. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, we, we, this is, this is an appropriate line to draw. No question. Well, it sounds like an amazing thing to have worked on. Uh, are you going to miss, uh, how does it feel to be out of no? You said you retired in uh, September 2019. So, uh, I, I am enjoying retirement. Uh, but I also, uh, I still kind of get to talk to people about these issues. And in some ways, it's a relief not to be the government attorney so I can speak more freely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> speak my mind. Do you think we could get, of, uh, yeah, I would love to get you and Bob Ballard on. Can we, do you think Bob Ballard <laughs> would agree to do, do a podcast with us and talk about the Titanic? I, I will ask. And, and if we can't get uh, him, uh, I will get some others that uh, have visited the titanic site great because it's yeah. it's it really ballard is would be ballard would be the ultimate i mean this is what i think i, I was so interested in learning about what you've been doing is uh, like many things on the coast and, and ocean issues there's so much richness underneath the surface and uh literally in this case under the surface on this wreck the decades-long federal legislation lawsuits all the way up through the court of appeals of the fourth circuit uh, international treaties and trade arrangements and it's just so complicated and uh you know you've been part of the the group that's uh, attempted to steer uh the salvage and uh the protection of this memorial site uh for the last 30 years and you know what a cool story to tell well, uh, thank you very much for uh, for sharing it with us yeah, thank you for having me and uh, happy to come back again and talk about another subject. We'd like that. Yeah, we would. And, so. Or even revisiting Titanic because this is something I think is going to continue to be um, uh, an issue wrestling. No, I, I, I can tell you right now, I just want to do a whole, I just want to do a whole show on the Law of the Sea. I just need a Law yeah. of the Sea oh, overview. That's, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. It's an international we'll, convention. We'll do that one in the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's Lady, a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Olaf Varmer. He is a uh, senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation, former uh, lead attorney at NOAA on shipwrecks, the shipwreck guy uh, for 30 years almost, and uh, just enjoyed the hell out of talking to you. What a complicated universe you, uh, you, you had the... I would say the privilege of practicing is really great to hear. I, it was a privilege. I, w I am a char I lived a charmed life, and I continue to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, all. Appreciate being on the American Shoreline podcast. All right. Thank you, and yeah. thank you for having me.